Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. It seems fitting to end our second virtual season with a little taste of our Republic of Childhood Literacy program. And we're pleased to say that we anticipate being able to hold more intensive literacy workshops with local kids later this fall and be back to in-person programming in 2022. So we'll begin today's podcast the way we usually begin a class visit, with the author being introduced to the students. Then Kevin Sands will give us all an overview of the Blackthorn books, including the most recent, The Traitor's Blade, which is volume five. Here's Kevin Sands with students from Connaught Public School and Fisher Park Summit Alternative School. Class visits can focus on all sorts of things depending on the author and the students, but here's a taste of Kevin Sands using the Blackthorn Key as a way of developing an intimate understanding of what it must have been like to live in the past, specifically during the time of the plague. Good morning. So uh, today we have a, a very special day where we have two classes coming together from two different schools to meet with Kevin Sands, uh, fantastic author, um, best known to our students as the author of the uh, Blackthorn Keys series. And uh, I know that the students in these two classes have really been enjoying Kevin Sands' latest release, which just came out on May the 11th. And we were very fortunate to get an advanced copy of the book so that we could read these stories or read this latest book together and enjoy this book and then know that we were going to have the opportunity to meet with Kevin Sands himself to find out more about the story, to talk with him about the story and the series as a whole. Um, our two classes today are a grade six class uh, with their teacher, Pam Jones from Connett Public School and my class uh, from Fisher Park Summit Alternative uh, School, uh, class A8A, and I am their teacher, David Farley. But really, we wanna just pass this over to Kevin Sands who we're so excited to have here. And I hope that you all will be able to uh, listen really well, ask lots of great questions, and uh, just enjoy this time together. So Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. And I'm delighted to be with you. I am indeed Kevin Sands, author of these right here, The Blackthorn Key Adventures. Um, there are five of them. Let me just show you. Five of them so far, which I know some of you have read. 
Uh, first one in the series is the Blackthorn Key. It starts off, tells the story of Christopher, who's an apothecary's apprentice, and he and his best friends, Tom and Sally, they get mixed up solving uh, mysteries and murders throughout the series. So we've got these four here, the Blackthorn Key, Mark the Plague, takes place during the Great Plague of London uh, in 1665, the Assassin's Curse, they go to Paris, and then Call of the Wraith, they're in uh, the wilds of uh, southwestern rural England. And then, of course, you guys have all seen my latest, uh, The Trader's Blade, which I am absolutely thrilled to have out after a couple of years. That's the series as it exists so far. I can say there will definitely be one more coming. It should be out next uh, June, I think, June 28th. Not this year, of course, but next year. Um, and that will be the end of the Blackthorn Key Adventures. But it's not all I've got uh, coming up. I am thrilled to announce, if you haven't heard yet, that I have a brand new series coming up. It's called Children... Uh, the, the series is called Thieves of Shadow. The uh, book itself. The first book is called Children of the Fox, um, and it's a fantasy about a band of five young thieves who get hired to steal a jewel and things go terribly, terribly wrong for them. So it should be a trilogy. The first book will be out this September. Because the Blackthorn Key books are full of puzzles and word scrambles, the students posed their questions in code that Kevin had to decipher. Here are a couple of the coded questions and two from the teachers on The Writing Life. And I wanted to give you guys a sense of what your lives would be like if you lived back during Christopher's time. Um, and uh, uh, to give you a sense of, the first thing I can tell you is that it was really, really dangerous back then. So to give you a sense of just how dangerous, I'd have it, you probably can see, I don't know how many people you can see on your screen, have a look at another one of you. If you got another student on your screen, have a look at another student on your screen. Choose a student on your screen, choose their, choose their name. Okay, so, uh, and now I'd like you to choose, so take a look at a different student on your screen. Get yourself a, a second name. Okay, so you've got your first name, you've got the second name, and then you've got you yourself. Well, I want to tell you, if you lived back during the time of the Blackthorn Key, out of the three of you, one of you would already be dead. Now, at this point, uh, I see a few faces. Normally, if people are together, people like to point at each other and say, well, that's going to be that's going to be him. That's going to be her, uh, which is uh, uh, unfortunately, I have to tell you, you don't get to choose. Back in Christopher's day, one out of every seven children died before they turned even one year old. One out of every five children died by the age of five. And by the time they got to around your age, maybe a year or two older than when you are, it was close to one out of every three who had died. Why? Because they didn't have all the things and all the knowledge and all the technology that helped keep us safe. And by far, the biggest, the biggest killer of the day was disease. So if we look at this, this is a woodcut that goes all the way back to the Great Plague of London of 1665. Um, and of course, you know, disease and infection has been on everybody's minds for the obvious reason for the past uh, year or so. Uh, but back in Christopher's day, you know, 
as as bad as COVID is and as serious as we take it, it's not really that bad as far as diseases go. I mean, it's got a mortality rate of, or a survival rate of about 99 point something percent. Um, and so while we're worried about it, it's nothing like diseases like the Black Plague. Uh, there was one point in time in the, that the Black Plague in, in medieval history probably killed about a third of all the people in, in medieval Europe. Um, in this particular plague, 1665, which is when the uh, book, The Mark of the Plague, takes place during this, it killed about 100,000 people. It's about one out of every five people in that city. So it's a terrible, terrible time. And diseases, by far, were the things that they were most worried about. But of course, there were other dangers, for example, like war. Now, war is still a problem in many places in the world, fortunately not where we are. Uh, but back then, war could take place just about anywhere. And sometimes one of the things that could happen is that children's could, children could fight in wars. Now, uh, again, there are still places in the world where unfortunately that does happen, fortunately not where we are. But it wasn't so long ago that you could actually find children fighting in wars. This is Johnny Clem. So this here, he is, he's about uh, he's 12 years old, I think, right there. So Johnny uh, was a soldier in for the uh, Union Army in the American Civil War back in the 1800s. So he joined up when he was about 10 or 11, and uh, he started out, he was actually just a drummer boy. But the um, when in one battle, Battle of Chickamauga, when his troops were uh, being routed and they were retreating, an enemy colonel managed to find Johnny and tried to capture him, ordered him to surrender. Um, and Johnny was having none of that. He actually shot the enemy colonel and escaped. And so for his bravery, Johnny was promoted and he became a sergeant. And at 12 years old, he was the youngest ever sergeant in the United States Army. Um, and he went to have a long and very successful career, retired as a general around the time of World War I. So it wasn't so long ago that you could possibly have been fighting in, uh, uh, in wars. Things like hunger and famine. Again, this is something that definitely plagues uh, where many places of the world today. But back in, not fortunately where we are, but back in Christopher's day, you know, this sort of thing was much, much more widespread. And the major reason for this was that they didn't have the kind of technology that we have today. They didn't have refrigeration. They didn't know how to preserve their food that well. Uh, they didn't have the ability to take massive amounts of food from one place in the world and bring it to a different place. So food was very local. So if you locally had a bad harvest, let's say there was a drought, then there would be a lot of starvation. And in fact, if the drought continued for a long, long time, then many, many people would go hungry. So that's another one of the dangers. Another thing is as simple as accidents. Now, I don't know uh, if you guys, any of you guys have ever broken a bone before, but uh, that could be uh, that could be quite dangerous. And have a look here at this photo. So this here is a photograph. Obviously, it's taken recently, but it's a photograph of a street that goes all the way back to Christopher's time. And you can see that the street itself is really very different uh, in the way it's put together. And the one I want to focus on right now is just how narrow 
the street is. Look at how narrow this is. So imagine for a moment that you're an apprentice, like uh, Christopher is an apprentice to Master Benedict, at least in the, in the first book. He was an apprentice to Master Benedict. And that would mean maybe you needed to go out and run errands for your master. So suppose you're an apprentice and you're out in the street running an errand for your master and a horse comes galloping down the road. Or even worse, a horse and carriage. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't see a lot of room to move here. There's no crosswalks, there's no stop signs. There's no such thing as right of way in 1665 England. You've got to get out of the way. And if you don't, the you could basically be trampled by the horse and there was, you know, kind of nothing, they wouldn't even necessarily get in trouble for it. You you were the one asked to get out of the way. But if you, you know, if you got knocked over, maybe you would break a bone. And that could be very, very serious. Because I don't know if any of you have ever broken bones before, but today we can fix these pretty well. And back in Christopher's day, they could fix them really well uh, as long as it was a simple break. But if it was a really bad break, like a compound fracture or something, someone had shattered the bone, say you shattered the bone in your wrist, they really couldn't fix that. And there was nothing they could particularly do for you. So the way they would have treated you is they would have had some of your friends hold you down and then they would have pulled out the saw and uh, I suspect you get where I'm going with this, right? So this is one of the reasons why people didn't tend to live as long as Christopher in Christopher's day. And by the way, um, horses and carriages are not the only dangers you'll find on the London streets at this time. I don't know if you've ever heard of a chamber pot before, but uh, back in 1665, they didn't have flush toilets. And so what they did, well, they didn't have toilets at all, really. And so what they did is they had these pots called chamber pots, which they would just sort of keep in the various rooms of their house. And when you had to go, you would, you know, you would use this pot. And uh, obviously, you know, you don't want that stuff lying around your house, right? Well, that's what windows are for. And so you can see that standing in the middle of a London Strait is not a very safe place to be. So what they used to do is they used to walk along this side. They used to walk hugging the wall. See how they've got these awnings up here? Sort of these awnings to protect people from anything that's out in the street or coming up from above. Um, yeah, so people used to walk along this the, the wall, sort of hugging the wall, and they called it jostling for the wall. And they realized, the reason they called it jostling is they said, you know, is because imagine, you know, you're walking one way and someone else is walking this way. You're both hugging the wall and you meet. What do you do? Do you say, oh, please, sir, you take the wall and I'll step out here into the street? Absolutely not. No, you would elbow the person out of their way and you would say, you go into the street where there are horses and carriages and, well, things falling from the sky. And that's how they used to walk the London streets. Something else that would have been very different uh, if you lived back in Christopher's time is that right now, most of you would not be in school. Uh, and every time I say that, there's always somebody who goes, yes, that sounds like a really good idea uh, to me, uh, but I haven't told you where you're gonna be yet. You would be at work. Yeah, children started work at a very, very young age uh, in, in Christopher's day. Even before the age of five, you would be expected to do something. Now, obviously, at the age of five, your chores are very, very simple. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily go out to work somewhere. You would probably have chores uh, in your house. If your parents owned a business or something, you would uh, be required to work in that business. If they owned a farm, you'd work on the farm. Um, 
So, and you'd be doing very simple tasks, but the older you got, the more responsibility you would take off. And then by the time they got to around your age, so 11, 12, 13 years old, uh, you might become an apprentice, like Christopher became an apprentice to Master Benedict. And what that means is you would leave your home and you'd leave your family and you would go live with your new master uh, and you'd live with them for the next seven, eight, nine years. And whatever it is they taught you to be, that is that is what you would be. So in this case, we're looking at a photograph. This is from about the turn of the previous century, so early 1900s. These boys are working in a textile mill. And, and take a look at this poor guy here. Uh, you can see his, uh, he's not even wearing shoes. Remember what we said about danger if his foot gets caught, he's in real trouble. Here are some, uh, here's some girls that are working uh, on a plantation. It looks like they're preparing tobacco leaves. Um, here's another girl. She's also working uh, in a textile mill. She's probably about eight, eight or nine years old. But I want to show you this guy here. This guy's my favorite. He's about six years old and he's a coal miner. Okay. So uh, and you can see he's wearing his he's wearing his hat with his little lamp. He's smoking his little pipe. And uh, of course, you can see that these are not the things that we do anymore, which is another reason that we tend to live a lot longer than they did back in Christopher's day. But uh, of course, in the Blackthorn Key, Christopher is no coal miner. He's an apothecary's apprentice. And you've probably seen from the books that an apothecary is kind of like an early version of a pharmacist. They made medicines and potions. But unlike modern day pharmacists who buy their medicines from pharmaceutical companies, uh, we, uh, apothecaries, there, there were no pharmaceutical companies. So they had to make their own medicines. And they had some very strange ideas for what actually constituted medicine. Um, now, some of the stuff they knew about worked. For example, willow bark. We've known for thousands of years, really, that if you take the bark of a willow tree and you steep it in a hot liquid and you drink that liquid like a tea, that it will relieve pain. It's a painkiller. And the reason for that is it contains a chemical called salicin, uh, which when you eat it, your body turns it into a different chemical called salicylic acid. And uh, that is actually found in one of our modern medicines, which is aspirin. The chemical formula for, for aspirin is acetyl salicylic acid. So willow bark is actually nature's own version of aspirin. And we've known about this for a long, long time, and it really does work. It's an effective painkiller. But most of the rest of their medicines were not very good. Um, and I'm gonna, we're going to look at this by taking a look at some of the medicines they might have had for the plague, the Great Plague, which is when, like I said, Mark of the Plague, the second book in the series, takes place during. So... Usually at this point, I'd ask, you know, do people know where the plague comes from? And a lot of the time, people uh, blame this poor little guy here, the rat. Say the rat is responsible for spreading the plague. And this is sort of true. Um, the rat was part of spreading the plague, but it wasn't actually the rat's fault. In fact, the rat was as much a victim of the plague as we were. The real culprit for the plague is a bacterium called Yersinia pestis. Here's a little um, uh, microscope view of it. And this 
bacteria doesn't specifically infect the rat. What it actually infects are fleas, okay? So if you don't know, fleas, their food is blood. They drink blood. So they will latch onto something and they will stab into the skin of whatever they're on with this big long proboscis and they will drink the blood. This is a, a fee that has uh, fed, a flea that has um, fed. And so obviously this is why this is painful and it's itchy and it, as we'll see, it can spread disease. Uh, so we try and keep our pets free of fleas. We obviously wanna keep ourselves free of fleas as well. So the bacteria, as it turns out, actually infects the flea. And what it does is it gets into the flea's stomach and it grows and it makes this giant mass inside the flea. And that fills up the flea's entire stomach. So what the flea does is it goes to eat, it gets hungry, it goes to eat, it drinks some blood. But of course, there's nowhere for the blood to go because it can't get into the stomach. And so it has to spit the blood back out. Now, the thing is, where the blood has touched this mass, it gets some of the bacteria in it. So when the flea spits the blood back out, the bacteria goes with it into the wound that the flea has just made. And this is actually what causes the person to become infected. And the reason that the Black Plague was so virulent and it spread so quickly is that, remember, the flea isn't biting you for fun. It's trying to eat. But it didn't. It bit somebody, didn't get to eat. So it flies off and it lands on someone else, bites someone else, again spreading the bacteria. It still can't eat. It's starving. So it jumps from person to person to animal. And because it keeps doing, it'll keep doing this basically until it until it dies. And because it does this so often, desperate for food, that's what causes the plague to spread. And why it spread so quickly and so badly, and was and was considered by far the worst of the diseases at the time. So we tend to think of the plague as being in the past. Uh, that's not entirely true. There are lots of places around the world where the plague still exists, and the United States has about half a dozen to a dozen cases of plague a year. Uh, we do have antibiotics for it. So most people who get it don't die, but there's usually at least one or two deaths every year. We don't have any cases in Canada, fortunately. Uh, it's a little too cold, it seems, for the plague to uh, really be able to thrive uh, up here. And uh, we're lucky that way. But of course, back in Christopher's day, they weren't lucky at all. They called it the sickness. Uh, what do you think makes a good story. So that's that's a really interesting um, and very complicated question. I don't know how to answer that very very short. So I think what you have to do is uh, you great characters that you care about and you want to stick with, um, and then an interesting a, a good story. I think asks questions that the reader wants answers to, whatever those questions might be. So it could be a mystery like who murdered who murdered this guy. Uh, it could be something like that, but it could be as simple as what's going to happen to, uh, we put a person in danger, what's going to happen to them? And I think ultimately that's it. You want a, a great story, ask questions about things and characters that we care about. How did you, how did you come up with all of those remedies? Um, I didn't come up with them. Those are, all of the remedies in the books are actual apothecary remedies of the time.
So they, uh, uh, I, I basically, it was research and I found, I discovered them through research. So a lot of research, mostly um, in older books. Um, this, a lot of this information isn't available online, even when I, five years ago, certainly not when I wrote it. And even not today, books remain one of the best, uh, I shouldn't say one of the best, usually the best way of finding things. So yeah, um, I found them all uh, in various books, um, but uh, yeah, none of them were made up. They were actually all authentic remedies and recipes at the time. Okay. Um, Let's see, why did you set your book in the 1600s? Okay, <laughs> this is fun. Um, okay, why did you set your book in the 1600s? Basically, it was too good a time to pass up. I didn't know when I was gonna, what I was gonna do when I set, uh, like when I was gonna set it when I first started. I didn't even know, I thought maybe I'd just make it a straight up fantasy. But I started to do some research and I narrowed down to 1660s London pretty quickly. Um, because I loved their I, the, the technology that they had and sort of how they were on the, the edge of science and mysticism. And plus, because the king had been overthrown, the previous king had been overthrown, and then the king came back and the, with the restoration, there were all these plots and conspiracies um, that were going on at the time. And I just thought that was a, that was an, it would be a fantastic setting for a story that's all about plots and conspiracies and secret codes and, and remedies and potions and things like that. That's how I chose it. Christopher seems to get um, knocked about the head a lot. Yes, he does. Aren't you worried about concussions? Um, uh, well, he should be, yes. Uh, that That was actually something they weren't really all that aware of that at the time. Um, yes, and he he certainly should be worried about concussions. We can hope that he'll uh, that he'll survive. He gets knocked about the head. He gets stabbed. He gets shot. Uh, some pretty bad things happen to poor Christopher uh, and and his friends in in this series, as you'll see. So uh, I, I do worry about him, but so far he's okay. How long did it take you to write the book? Yeah. So I mean, everyone's going to be different. Mine. Mine is going to be, if I'm working very hard, yes, then I will do that. Sometimes you just sort of let things sit. And so I do other things or or whatever, or I don't even work for a few days or, you know, in between in between uh, drafts. So so what I would, with the Blackthorn key, I would, it starts usually with research. I kind of have, maybe have the vaguest idea what the book would be, not always. Like with Mark of the Plague, I just knew it would be a plague story, but I didn't know what it would be about. And so I do research. It usually takes about five five weeks full-time research where I'm just learning about the time and so on and and the things that I need to know uh, and then I plot and while I'm doing the research I'm plotting as well and I'm a plotter I plot everything out in complete detail so so I will um, I will go bullet point by bullet point um, and actually list everything that's in the book and then once I've done that, then I start to write. So I tend to write the first draft very quickly. I try and write it certainly within a month, uh, possibly if I'm really good about it within a few weeks. Um, it's garbage, but that's okay. It's just a first draft. Uh, and then I let it sit for a couple of weeks and then I'll go back and I'll polish it. And at that point, that's when I'll send it in um, to the editor. The editor then will make comments, they'll come back and there'll be a I'll, I'll edit it again and then so on. And then at that point, it's kind of pretty solid and, and we send it off to do proofreading and copy editing and, and so on and so forth. So the whole process usually is about six months total.
So is there any tips or advice you'd give somebody who wants to start writing a book? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot and it could take forever to do it, but I'll just say this. The big big three to start are, first, you should read as much as you can because the more you read, the more you learn. You get better vocabulary. You learn how to use the prose dialogue. You see things that really work. And when you see things that work, you say, this book does this really well. You study it. You kind of study it almost like a textbook. You say, well, how do they do that? And you can learn techniques from that and start applying it to your own. Uh, so that's number one, read as much as you can. Number two is write as much as you can, because writing is like riding a bike. You can read about it as much as you like, but you're never going to get good unless you work at it. Um, and so you have to practice, practice, practice like everything else. And then the third one, honestly, is don't get discouraged. You know, it took me five years of trying to write novels before I wrote The Blackthorn Key. It wasn't the first thing I wrote. I wrote three manus- three different manuscripts before I ever wrote The Blackthorn Key, which you'll, you've never seen and you never will see. Why? Because they're terrible. That's it. They are terrible. They're no good. And it's because, you know, you had to learn, I had to learn to write. And so it's, it can be very discouraging because it takes years and years and years. But, uh, you know, the ones who succeed ultimately are the ones really who persist. So that's, those are the three big tips that I would, uh, that I would suggest. That was Kevin Sands spending time with students from Connaught Public School and Fisher Park Summit Alternative School. The Blackthorn Key books, including Book 5, The Trader's Blade, are available from fine independent booksellers and libraries from coast to coast to coast. Special thanks to David Farley and Pam Jones for welcoming Kevin into their virtual classrooms. Just like those students, we're taking a much-needed summer break and we'll be back with a third and final virtual season this fall before we return to in-person events and programming in 2022. I hope everyone listening is able to get vaccinated, and I hope to see you all soon. Thanks again for supporting authors and publishers and independent booksellers through this strange time. We miss you, we miss that community feeling, and we hope you stay safe and take care of each other. We'll be back in late August with more amazing authors, all presented free of charge and on demand. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation and take a moment to rate and review the podcast. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director. I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Listening.